I can't stand having to write code to onboard into a product. You'll talk to a customer and it's almost like they don't want to offend you by telling you something's broken. It can be tough to draw that out of them. The most vocal customers are the best ones. They're the ones who are going to tell you about every single bug. I cherish that now. That's what we look for in our beta customers. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code, the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. In this episode, we talk about some of the challenges of onboarding developers and how we can make that experience better. So today we're talking about onboarding and what a pain in the ass it is for DevTools <laughs> companies. It's weird to me that in the consumer world, we've got products that we can happily onboard into in seconds. And in the DevTools world, we go in the range of minutes. You know, Five or ten minutes feels pretty good. Yeah, you know, we're dealing with like complicated things that people are like integrating into these you know, other complicated things that they've built, and uh, it's often not quite as simple as just typing your email address and click a button. You know, you have to add some pieces to your code or add some dependencies or start instrumenting things. There's, there's all this stuff you might have to do to get started. And those requirements feel just unreasonable at times. I mean, I can't stand going through it, having to write code to onboard into a product. I remember getting stopped using New Relic for the first time and having to actually write code before I could start using the product. And it's discouraging, but required. And it's just this infinite frustration. And we, you know, in our product, we're trying to eliminate that as much as we possibly can, but it's a unique frustration of our world. Right, definitely. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to deploy applications to the internet and they can be, you know, the variation in those is so huge, and so we spend a lot of time focusing on making it work out of the box without you having to you know, make a whole bunch of changes right, right out of the gate. I think that's really important. So you and I are both at early stage companies. We're dealing with our beta customers now, and that's a very high touch scenario. We're interacting with them very closely and one at a time. But we often have to deal with things like personal email addresses, where they're signing up for the product as a company, but using their personal email. So I spend about 10 or 15 minutes just discovering who the person I'm dealing with even is. Yeah, I mean, we definitely see that a lot. And it's actually, it's not just personal email addresses. You know, they're, they're actually probably trying us out in the context of personal accounts to begin with, or personal, you know, maybe they're coming to bring a personal project, like their blog or, or something like that to begin with. And they want to, like, you know, is this thing going to work before I actually start to try and introduce it at work? Yeah, and you're trying to demonstrate value in an environment that one is not the intended environment, and two might have totally different requirements around it. And you know, for us in Amazon, for example, we're dealing with people's personal accounts that have things like EC2 Classic support, which has been deprecated, and their production environments at work are a lot less likely to have that. But it's something that we, as the makers of the product, have to consider just because of how people might onboard into it. Yeah, definitely. And even if we're lucky enough to get somebody's work email address, we still have to go through the whole test flow where they put us in their staging environment and give us a try. And, it, and it's a tough constraint to be in a place where you're going to have measurably less value, but still have to prove that you can be valuable to the customer. Yeah, they they want to see is this tool going to work for me? And you know, no matter how good your documentation, no matter how good your examples, most people are going to want to actually put their hands on it. And, and see how it works, and see where it falls down, and, and I mean, experimentation is sort of like the name of the game around this stuff, anyway, for our target customers. So, 
I think you know, providing some sort of backdrop for that and making it really easy to to play with your product is is pretty important. Yeah, and really considering how you're going to provide value in these circumstances where you might be restricted is super important. Although I have to say, this morning we had a guy sign up for the product, put us in an environment that had literally nothing in it. It was an <laughs> AWS environment with zero instances and zero groups, and we're a product that health checks other things in the environment, and there was nothing to health check. That was a tough sell. Now he knows that you're not going to take down his Amazon account, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that too, the security check, right? Like half of the battle is convincing people that one, you're not going to break, two, you're not going to break their stuff. Yeah, I think I mean, that's certainly another driver for why people try with their personal accounts first, right? It's like, I'm not going to you know, install this tool into my production account at work and that I don't know anything about. Yeah, it's been really funny actually to watch this. We, you know, we do a lot of onboards in person over video chat or uh, you know even just watching their laptop screens, and I mean we're dealing with incredibly smart people. They they watch and they can see what our onboarding process is doing to their environment, and they go and audit everything. They're checking every change just to preferences, and and they know exactly what's happening, and they they check us on everything, which is you know worrying, but also kind of cool to see just you know how good. They are at, they're at what they're doing. We basically we get the same thing. People trying to install us into their actual Amazon account is a pretty tough sell. We've had a lot of luck getting you know, early users to just either create a new Amazon account and install everything there, or we actually we will create a whole bunch of we pre-create a whole bunch of Amazon accounts and just hand them out to people to to let them start trying stuff. It's anything we can do to reduce the amount of stuff that they have to do to get to get in and get experimenting, I think is really valuable. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not it's something we're not doing yet at, at my current company, but uh, we've done in the past is create these um, real demo environments where, you know, without creds even people can try the product out online and get a sense for what it will be like without signing up. Uh, which has been a really useful tool for me in the past. Yeah, it can be pretty tough to do that with developer tools, just because you know you are talking about complex integrations in a lot of cases. But yeah, I, I think hugely valuable when you get that right. If if I'm a couple clicks away from actually playing around with the product, and and maybe even a couple more clicks from you know taking what I've been playing with and and going live with it, that's any friction you can reduce in that path is is going to help. Yeah, that actually raises an interesting point about the transition over the last few years from. How enterprise software companies used to sell to how they seem to be selling now, which was the transparency that now things like pricing and a real sense of what the product does, which it all sounds pretty basic, but these are things that you wouldn't expect to see five, ten years ago. That selling a B2B product, you would have a button to contact a salesperson, and you might not even know what the product did on the homepage. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you still see a lot of that today, and it's it's incredibly frustrating as a buyer of software to run into one of those. So it's we try and keep that in mind a lot. When from the other end of that, it's knowing how much it's going to cost and knowing exactly the value that it's going to provide for you, or how it's going to make your life better, is really important. Yeah, it seems so obvious just to design your marketing at least so that people know what the product does when they <laughs> come to your website. <laughs> I can't. Imagine a consumer company dealing with some of these issues, like the problem of multiple environments, and that we get people signing up with personal accounts or with staging environments that are not the intended use of the product at all. But in order to win these customers over, we have to show value in them. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, those environments can basically be completely different too, right? Like my personal AWS account maybe has nothing in common with you know, what my company's looks like. You know, it's like. 
almost as if somebody wants to like test out your iPhone app by installing it on their Android app at home or their Android phone at home first. It's, it could be like wildly different. Yeah, we were actually talking the other day about having kind of a cleanup button where because we know so many people are onboarding this way, putting us in a staging environment or something first, that they'll have to kind of decommission some things and, and remove some things that they created in that first environment before moving to the other one. And so we're trying to make that process easier for them too as part of our onboarding, which just seems ludicrous, but it's funny to talk about. Yeah, it's almost worth trying to, is there some way that you can, like through reduced permission sets or something, like actually introduce them slowly into the production environment in a trusted manner as opposed to you know, making them go through this experimentation phase first? Maybe if it was like very guided, it might be possible to pull that off. So you mentioned you know, dealing with customers sort of on a one-on-one basis, in kind of a very high-touch manner, and that's something that we've had a lot of success with, and we we actually think is really important. You know, we have a public Slack channel. We invite people to come in. We talk with people all the time. They ask questions about the product. They ask, you know, if they're having problems or if they, you know, even questions about Amazon. You know, sort of things that are not even directly related to us. We start you know, kind of get a conversation going about that stuff. It's been hugely valuable to have that kind of real time. I could just ping somebody. I kind of get to know our customers, you know, individually. I know what they're building, you know, kind of the problems that they're having, and and that's been really helpful. Yeah, and not only that we get to interact with them in real time, but we have a way of reaching out to them. And that one of the issues we have, I think, as an early stage company, is that people are trying the product. They're not necessarily engaged with the product, and they may not tell us about that. And so, having every possible way to reach out to them, but also then making part of our onboarding process, actively reaching out to them during this process and, and making sure they're getting value and seeing if they found bugs and just uh, doing everything that we can on our side to make sure that they're happy and engaged. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, reaching out, kind of you know, keeping the engagement level high and reaching out constantly, like you almost always have to solicit feedback. I mean, you'll get some really awesome customers that'll just come and tell you everything that's wrong with your product and, and those are great. But for most people, you have to actually solicit that feedback. A lot of the best you know, learning we've done in, in sort of you know, our onboarding process and, and finding where the friction is is just talking to somebody and seeing the questions they ask. You know, sometimes they'll be like completely off base, or you know, they weren't even like in the ballpark of things you were expecting them to ask. You know, you're expecting them to ask how does something work, and they're asking you know what does this thing even do. Yeah, I think you raised two really interesting points there. One is like when I was new to this, both new to startups and new to designing technology products. I used to take offense from that feedback. You know, like, how dare you criticize my work? Uh, but as you were saying, I mean, the most vocal customers are the best ones. The the ones who are going to tell you about every single bug. I cherish that now. That's what we look for in our beta customers. I, I mean, for two reasons. One, it you know, exposes all of the the things that you hadn't seen, and two, those customers are actually your biggest opportunity to you know. To make them successful, if they're engaging with you enough to tell you what's wrong, like they want it to work badly enough that you can just help them a little bit, and they're going to be great. Yeah, totally. If nothing else, if they're complaining, it means they care enough to, <laughs> exactly. to complain. And like we were talking about earlier, partly because our onboarding processes tend to ask a lot of our customers, and because that can take significant time, it's really on us to engage with our customers and figure out how we can help through that and how we can make it easier for them. And so. Because of the burden on them, it's you know it's it's a big thing for us to both learn how we can make that better and also help them help customers through it as best we can. One of the interesting things that we've been seeing is that we get not only really technical people coming to you know, through our onboarding process. We get some you know very technical developers. They kind of understand the basics of what's going on. 
you know, they have a completely different, you know, one set of questions. We get other people that are, you know, maybe a development manager, or you know, in a lot of cases, it's, you know, I had one ops guy and he's now AWOL and I can't get in touch with him and I just need help. And they have a completely different set of things that they're looking for when they come to talk to us. It's been really enlightening to be able to kind of talk to to all of those groups and kind of see what the, what it is that they're looking for because it's very different. Yeah, we in speaking to the different kinds of people using the product, there seems to be a transition happening in the way dev teams are set up, and so we're dealing sometimes with developers, sometimes with operations people, sometimes people who identify as DevOps, and it's almost like we have to learn something about the organization first how their team is set up and how they deploy infrastructure to even get a basis for for the level of conversation that we're they're having and the level of knowledge yeah like you were saying it could be anyone from a manager uh, I even had a, a couple of product people uh, contact me and so yeah just establishing how the team is set up has been really important to figuring out how to talk with our customers yeah understanding you know, who makes decisions about that kind of stuff understanding how new technology is deployed at their company it's you know, it's different for everybody like some people are very gung ho they just like take new stuff and go crazy with it all the time and some companies are very conservative and it's it's a lot different to to get you know sort of the new thing new shiny things rolled out for them i think the contrast of we were talking about this a bit earlier, broad versus deep and open source versus SaaS. So I think Convox's case is really interesting because you've got both an open source product and a SaaS product. Can you talk a little bit about the the contrast and the priorities of, of designing those two products? Sure, yeah. I mean, so it, it starts right at the beginning, like you mentioned. You know, we have the open source, we have SaaS, the SaaS product. Our SaaS product is not open source. So there's just fundamentally different ways that we work on those projects, even, you know. With the open source, we work in the open. We do a lot of discussion with the community before we make changes. You know, pull requests and try and get you know a lot of people involved in the changes and make sure we're taking you know all kinds of viewpoints into account that it's going to be useful for a broad range of people. And then, you know, with the SaaS layer, we're basically saying, okay, we now have this opinionated. Okay, this is how you should be using this, and this is where we're going to this is where we're going to codify sort of you know, the happy path, the way that you. The easy, one, you know, a couple of clicks way into the product that, that uses all of this crazy technology that we've built. Yeah, and the contrast there is really interesting because open source tools, almost by definition, have to appeal to a wide audience. You want as many people as possible adopting them and contributing to them. That's, I think, a big part of how they develop traction. Is you get a, a, an engaged community of developers who want to help. And SaaS almost seems the opposite. That a really common startup mantra is this: you know, make a few customers love you as opposed to a lot of people like you. And so. Making a great polished experience for a much smaller number of people seems really important to developing a SaaS business. And uh, at Opsi, we're dealing with this too. Um, we're only SaaS; we have no open source component, and so we we really are trying to focus on a narrow set of use cases and and make them as polished and perfect as possible. And we are competing with open source tools, so sometimes we will see these responses like, "Oh, why would I pay for your tool when I can get the open source for free?" But you know, then there's this back and forth about the development time required to customize it, and just you know the different nature of yeah. those kinds of tools. And operating it, yeah, you know, it may be free, but somebody has to run it. Somebody has to wear a pager for it, and it's it's easy to lose sight of that stuff. Yeah, and I think the hybrid model you've got is actually pretty interesting because you have you know kind of both options there. It's somebody can start, and if they want to, develop it on their own, or they can go the you know the the SaaS route and have a, a much more tailored experience for them. 
Yeah, I, I think he sort of, you know, we we do have quite a lot of opinions on you know how it should work and, and sort of the way you should build things. But if you disagree with our opinions, we still want you to be able to use the product and still be able to get some value out of you know sort of you know it covers a lot of things. Um, it's a very sort of broad topic here, deploying applications. So you know, even if you don't necessarily agree with the way that we see the world, you can probably you know still find quite a lot of value, and we still want to keep you involved in the community and you know being able to you know. You're still going to contribute things back that help other people at some point. So, I, th- I think it's just important to get you know, everybody involved in that. It seems like in the open source world, products have to start as kind of a empty box, like an empty shell, and so that because of their incentive to be broad and to work for lots of people, they have to be configured to work with the in specific environment that they're being installed in. And so, that I mean, almost by necessity, it ends up being like. A, a worse experience than a, a comparative SaaS because of the way the tool will almost certainly need to be configured, starting with an open source product versus a SaaS that, that, as you say, takes opinions about how things should be set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so we've definitely decided to make a lot of very scope limiting decisions. You know, we only work on AWS and you know, things like that. Just trying to keep at least the bounds in check a little bit and manageable. And then really just focusing on have, having really great defaults for everything. So we try and make it configurable where we think it's appropriate. Um, but yeah, we want to. You know, our installer should should not require you know a ton of you know flags and options and, and everything to get right. You know, you should be able to either you know one click install or or at least you know get a, a basic package without a whole lot of you know, upfront configuration thought. Yeah, the sensible defaults point is a really good one. That there are. Usually, many decisions to make when onboarding into these kinds of products, and the best thing that we can do is not necessarily choose for them, but give them a really good default, so that they don't have to think too hard about it. And that if we do have a strong opinion about how something should be done, we're at least steering them in that direction. I think the point about customer success ties in with measuring onboarding in an interesting ways because sometimes what we hear from customers is different from what they're really experiencing, and we need. Certain kinds of measurements is gut checks. Like we want to see where they got hung up during the onboarding process and how much time they spent on certain pages and did they get to a certain step. And they might not admit that when we're having a conversation with them about it. And so having that data to back it up has been really important for us. It's funny, you know, you'll talk to a customer and it's almost like they don't want to offend you by telling you something's broken. It's it's uh, it can be tough to to draw that out of them for sure. So yeah, I mean. Whether it's you know, Mixpanel or some of these other tools, like actually measuring the things that they are actually doing, as a, in addition to the things that they're telling you. And even at an early stage, we've seen that just a few data points can be really, really useful. If people are getting stuck at the same point, that tends to show itself pretty quickly. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that data is really valuable in aggregate. You know, being able to see you know, trends over, you know, we we keep track of how many installations are actually running in the wild, and you know, that one metric is is really valuable for us in a lot of ways. Because as it moves, you know, we start to track down why, and having something anything like that that you're keeping an eye on is is really important. Yeah, there's kind of another level to onboarding on a dev tool too, which is uh, API usage. That you might, as we do, have um, you know a clicky onboarding experience through a UI, but you still want to see that you've gotten into their workflow. And for a dev tool, that means code. And so not just measuring that they're using the API, but really figuring out if they have made this part of their development workflow. Yeah, I mean, seeing sort of the the novel things being built around your product are pretty interesting to watch. 
we've discovered some of those when you know people start using the API, they'll you know they'll make a side project, and sometimes they'll start using the API badly. Like we had one person that just started hammering our API, and it was I think it was a bug or something. But you know, I'm watching API requests, and it sort of like spikes in the middle of the month out of nowhere, and. Yeah, just trying to hunt down what's actually happening there can be really interesting. Now I'm talking to a guy who's built something really interesting on <laughs> on top of it. Yeah, that kind of relates to something we talked about in the last episode. Just generally defining DX around this partnership between us as makers of products and the developers that use our products in their own products, and how those unexpected uses of our APIs and the different ways that people think about using our products and and the way that they perceive them during onboarding i mean that can really change our own development trajectory i mean absolutely it's i mean seeing the things that people are actually trying to to accomplish with with what you're trying to do is i mean it's enlightening it's very often not what you thought it would be <laughs> the unexpected uses of the product can be really beneficial to us because if we're paying attention we'll start to see value being created that we weren't even aware of and one of our customers Figured out that our tool was a slightly easier way to restart his AWS instances than going into the console. And so he's been using it for that. <laughs> and that opens up a whole world of possibilities for our product about you know, directions we might go to make other kinds of operations like that easier that might not be the way we imagined the core product working, but can still steer us around creating value for the people that are using it. Yeah, it sort of like gets back to the the core or the crux of product work, right? It's, you know, when you see people doing these one-off things, it's like, is that actually you know the new trend? Is that something I should be following? Is that just one-off? Is that person just you know are they a special snowflake, or is that actually the direction my product should be going? And just keeping an eye on it, I think, is really important. It's been really great talking about this. I love to rant about the challenges we face during onboarding and the crazy stuff we have to deal with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's always interesting to talk to people and, and see how they're, they're using your product, and it's uh, always educational. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. We are continuing to talk about developer experience every couple of weeks, and we would love to hear from you as makers of dev tools about the kinds of experiences you've had onboarding new users, the kinds of design challenges you've faced as makers of these tools, or anything else you can think of. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've had a, a particularly good or bad experience yourself, we'd love to hear about it. That's about all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.